Well, many of you who have been uh, around know that we, we are in the midst of this series looking at the I Am statements of Jesus Christ. And in the Gospel of John, there, there are seven statements, seven iterations, where he makes the statement, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And this formula serves two purposes in that gospel. First, it is borrowing from the special name for God, which is Yahweh. Right? But when, when Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3, asks God his name, and he says, I am who I am. Yahweh is kind of the, the um, rough transliteration from Hebrew to English in that way. Now, when Jesus is using this verb, he's claiming a quality with the divine nature of God. He's making a subtle statement of his unity with God, something that we're going to see him make much more explicit in this morning's passage. But then there's the second half of the passage, whether it be the light of the world or the good shepherd or the gate. That is meant to highlight something about his character, his provision, his goodness. Last week we saw his power and authority over life and death. So this morning we come to the sixth I am statement, the penultimate, I like that word, right? The, The sixth statement where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the words of one of the commentators, he says, this is the premier expression of the theology of the entire gospel. There's so much wrapped up in this phrase. Let's take some time and try to unpack it a little bit. So if you want to pull out your Bibles and turn with me to to John chapter 14, if you want to follow along, we're going to read the first 14 verses of the chapter. Now, while you're turning there, uh, I just want to give you some literary background on what's going on. Last week, we saw Jesus' last final public appearance prior to his trial and execution. It was where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And between those two times, we have an intimate gathering that Jesus has with his disciples in the upper room. The Gospel of John gives us much more content than any of the other Gospels of what took place in those interactions. I think it spans from like John 13 to I think even 17. Uh, And so, when we get to John 14, what we're going to see is a very common literary style, which is called a farewell formula. Jesus is seeking to bring comfort to his disciples in light of his upcoming departure. But this isn't just a a long sermon or monologue, because the discourse, and we're going to see a a couple of uh, examples of this in the text that we read, the discourse is advanced through, deci- through questions or comments that come from his disciples. In fact, that begins in the, the chapter, if, if you have it open, you can flip or, or, you know, move your eyes right beforehand. In verse 36 of the previous chapter, Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? So they know he's going somewhere. And Peter asks this question, and then Jesus unpacks it. And so in, in chapter 14, we'll see input from Thomas, Philip, I think those are verses 4 and 8, respectively, and then Judas, although not Judas Iscariot, the other, there's another disciple named Judas. I think, about, I think about that sometimes, like what bad luck for him to have been named Jesus, to share the name with the guy that betrayed Jesus. 
You know, I'm sure early in the church there was much confusion, you know, like Peter going, introducing his friend. He's like, hey, you know, this is my friend Judas, but not that one. You know, it's like that disclaimer every time. So anyway, let's, let's get to the text. If you follow along with me as I read John 14, verses 1 through 14. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the first three verses are this, what we see, this part of the farewell formula I mentioned a moment ago. Jesus is comforting the disciples. He's preparing to leave and wants to make sure that they're not abandoned. His departure is purposeful. It's not going to seem like that in the next 24 to 48 hours, but what is to come is part of Jesus' plan. His call for them is to believe in him, believe in his plan, trust that he knows what he's doing. Verse 2 in that is the famous passage where Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place for us. King James Version describes this place as as mansions. And, you know, I just want to make it clear that this isn't about Jesus going up and preparing, you know, constructing all these large separate houses for us. That's not what is in view here. I've often heard people talk about that, right? Right? Just earned another room on my mansion in heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The word is better understood as a part of God's household. God has the mansion that we all dwell within, right? It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. And there's a big, big table with lots and lots of food and a big, big yard that we can play football. Some of you just had some 90s Christian music nostalgia there, uh, those who listened to audio adrenaline in the 90s. The point is, is that Jesus promises that he is going to the Father, that he is going to secure our living arrangements, and he's going to come back. 
for his disciples. Now, he doesn't explicitly state when that's going to be. Uh, we don't know for sure what's in view here. This, is it meant to be understood as Easter or Pentecost or at the disciples' death, the second coming? I, there's a lot of options here. I, I tend to lean on the, the second coming as what's in view. But the point is that he's reminding his followers that in his absence, they're not going to be forsaken and they're not going to be forgotten. Thomas then asks the next logical question in verse 4. Lord, we don't know what you're talking about. Like, where are you going? How are we going to figure out how to get there if we don't even know where it is that you're going? The disciples are lacking the destination and the way to the Father. And this is where we see Jesus respond with this I am statement, that he's the way and the truth and the life. I think it's important to note that each of these statements is preceded by a definite article. Jesus didn't say that he is a way or a truth, but that he's the way, the truth, the life. First, that he says he's the way. The Greek word used here is describe it, describes a road or a path or a journey. Jesus is the way to get to that desired destination of communion with God. And he makes this even more explicit after the I am statement where he says, no one's, like, you can't get to the Father except through me, except through my path. And this is similar language to what we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the sheepfold, where Jesus said that he was the gate or the door. Here Jesus is saying he is the only way to have access with the Father. Only Jesus can lead us to the place that he has prepared for us. Now, in the, the, the modern age that we live in, this language of exclusivity, is, it's, it's frowned upon. It's often frowned upon. It often makes people feel uncomfortable. And we'll circle back to that, that feeling, that thinking a little bit at the end when we get to application. Next, Jesus says that he is the truth. He is the authoritative representation of God. Strong's Concordance defines the Greek word in this way, quote, what is true in any matter under consideration, opposed to what is feigned, fictitious, or false. Jesus has the unique ability to disclose what God has said because he has seen God. He hears and talks to him. And we we saw this last week with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is praying directly to the Father, sharing publicly his open line of communication with his dad. And lastly, Jesus is the life, that this is a a wholeness of life. This is uh, the, the physical and spiritual, our present breath that we take, but also our future existence. All of it is in his hands. And Jesus responds to Thomas' question by reminding of them of what they should already know, not just the destination, but that he's the way for them to get there. In the words of one commentator, only the Father can lead us to himself, and the Father is genuinely present in Jesus. And this, this echoes this, this relationship between the Father and the Son is what we see at the start of John's gospel. Right? John's gospel, John 1, 1 starts, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was God. Now, for many of us, this is teaching that we take for granted because we've been immersed in it, that the Father and and Jesus are one, the Father and Son are one because of our church experience. But I'm sure the disciples in this moment are kind of grappling with this metaphysical implications of what Jesus was saying. Jesus is using such flippant language to discuss his relationship with the Father. And so it prompts Philip to make his request in verse 8, like, Jesus, show us the Father. 
Jesus responds by saying, look, like if you've seen me, you have seen God. I mean, this, this had to blow their minds because Jesus was claiming that they experienced God more fully than any previous encounter we see in the Old Testament. Even Moses, right, one of Israel's pinnacle leaders, made the request to see God's face and was denied. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses wants to see the glory of God in all of its grandeur. And this is the glory where, the, the, the story where God says, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide you in that, that cleft of the rock, but put my hand over you and pass by. Like, you can't see my front side, but you can see my back side after I pass. But in verse 20, he says, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is claiming that he is the full embodiment of God in the flesh, that to see Jesus, to see God in a way that no saint, no prophet lifted up in the annals of Scripture had ever had that same opportunity. And this isn't the first time that Jesus claimed this. A few weeks ago, we looked at John 10, which was the story of the Good Shepherd. And after that episode, we didn't read it in, during the, the service, but there's this scene where Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And they're like, stop speaking in parables, like, stop speaking in riddles. Can you just tell us plainly who are you? Like, are you the Messiah? And so Jesus, in response, says explicitly, I and the Father are one. And what do they do? They immediately pick up stones to throw at him. I I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience, like someone's just asking you to tell them quickly, and you do, and they, like, don't like the answer that you give, and they lash out at you. In some sense, it's like, if you didn't really want that answer, why did you ask for it? Jesus is saying, the Father and I are one. There's a unity there. So let's try to bring this home. Let's try to connect some dots for us. I've highlighted three themes that I want to dive into to help us make that connection. And here are my three themes. First, I want to acknowledge that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us in God's kingdom. What does that mean, and what are the ramifications of that? Secondly, I want to touch on this exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way to God. And lastly, discuss a bit the claim that Jesus makes that he and the Father are one. How does that shape our understanding of the nature of God, right? like the Trinity, for, for instance? The purpose, as I said at the beginning of this address, is for Jesus to give his disciples comfort. Things are going to get a little hairy for them in the next few hours but they need to know that this is all a part of God's plan, that it's for their good. It's good for them that Jesus has gone ahead and prepared a place for them, and he's done the same for us, prepared a place for us in the household of God. Right? These rooms that are already in existence, right? God, God doesn't have like a building permit in heaven for new construction, but Jesus is paving that way so that we could have access to him. Notice how the way is formed. Notice Jesus's, if Jesus is our path, but notice Jesus's path there. His way to get to the Father is through the cross. He endures the cross of God's wrath so that we don't have to. I love this quote from D.A. Carson. He says, there is glory in this paradox and much room for adoring meditation because Jesus's own way was the cross. He himself became the way for others. As the Lamb of God, he took away the sins of the world. As the good shepherd, he laid his life down for the sheep. 
the lamb dies, the world lives. The shepherd dies, the sheep live. Jesus is the gate by which men and women enter and find life. He is their way. The way of Jesus is the cross. The way of the disciples is Jesus. Now we can read that and we can be thankful that Christ has given us eternal life. And that's correct. But I think what's more important is that he provided a pathway for us to have communion with God. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. Let's not focus on eternal life and miss out on that communion of God. Because it's not just about living in paradise where we'll never die. But that we get to be in the presence of the Lord. Someone once asked me a question several years ago that has continued to haunt me and convict me. I can't, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I can't even remember who it was that asked me the question, but I remember the question. And it was this. If you could have heaven with all of its delights and goods that it offers, but Jesus was not there, would you want to stay? Let me put that another way. If you could gain all the benefits of heaven, right, health, wellness, friendships, good food, never dying, but God wasn't present there, would you be content to stay? Now, I think we all know the right answer is no, right? Like, Jesus as the giver is far more important than the gifts, right? That's the right answer. That's what we ought to say. But if you're like me, there are plenty of times in my life where I'd say, yeah, why not? I mean, it's paradise. If I would want for nothing, why would I be distraught if God's presence wasn't there? And I think that, that you know, feeling that I have reveals a lot about my heart. It reveals a lot about my intimacy with God when I respond that way. A few years ago, Sarah and I watched uh, The Good Place. It's a sitcom starring Christian. But any of you guys seen The Good Place before? One person. All right. Well, I'll try to make this... Uh, I try to make this, this uh, relate. So it, I don't even remember what station it was on, ABC, NBC. But it, it was, the show dealt with, it was, it was really profound in a lot of ways. It dealt with really thoughtful, ethical situations regarding good and evil, right? Heaven and hell, what they call the good place and the bad place. And the show starts in the first season where Kristen Bell finds herself in the good place, in heaven, But she knows she's been a horrible person and doesn't belong there. And so it's this kind of push and pull, this tug of war where she's learning ethics, she's learning how to be a good person, but uh, is also at the same time lying about the fact that she doesn't actually belong, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens. Um, The first season was actually quite profound, pretty big twist at the end of that, that first season. But after it, I feel like it lost some allure, the show did. But the worst part, and I'm going to spoil this, I'm sorry for those of you who didn't see it, but it's been out for many, many years, so. But the worst part was how the whole series ended. In short, these main characters, these four friends, have opened, reopened the pathway to heaven. They weren't actually in the good place the first season, spoiler alert. The general public, after 500 years, is finally able to be ushered into heaven. But when they get there, They see all these ancient figures, you know, like Socrates and, you know, whatever these, you know, ancient philosophers and famous people, Joan of Arc, 
And they're like in a social hall, standing there like zombies. They're like bored out of their mind. And they're like, what gives? Like, how is it that they're finally, they're actually in the good place, this place we've been trying to get for all this time, and they look so hopeless. Basically, the people had become bored. And so the protagonists create a plan that they feel like, you know what, if you've, if you've lived your best life, if you've shot, shot your shot, whatever your purpose in heaven is, you can walk through this doorway that they create and cease to exist, become one with the universe. And so what happens is now that there is this possibility of termination of their eternal life in heaven, it provides an incentive to pep everyone up. When they felt that they've done everything they wanted to do, whether it was after five years or 500 years, they could walk through this doorway and experience annihilation. And so in the show, over four seasons, you watch the characters you've grown to love connect with one another, finally fulfill their dreams of life, and then feel like it's time to move on. And that, that final episode is aptly titled, Whenever You're Ready. Right? Whenever you're ready and it's time to move on, you can. And I watched that episode, and I have to tell you, I felt so like, ugh, afterwards. I mean, they tried to spin it in this like positive way, but the episode made you feel hopeless in the end. And, but as I thought on it, as I reflected it wasn't just that it was bleak, but it was actually kind of compelling as well because it pointed to the anemia that our cultural understanding of heaven possesses. If heaven is only about me fulfilling my own desires, then you know what? Yes, it's going to get boring. We don't need heaven, though, to understand that. Solomon wrote those very same words thousands of years ago in the book of Ecclesiastes. He did everything that he wanted, whatever he wanted under the sun, and he found it was meaningless in the end. Heaven, without the presence of Jesus Christ, would eventually for us turn into another hell. And I think that's why I find the Christian view of heaven so much more compelling than the best that the secular world has to offer. Because eternity is not drab or dull because of the presence of God. He is, that, he is an infinite being that we as finite creatures are going to spend eternity continuing to learn more about Him and reflect that back to Him in worship. I think about, I was listening to Francis Chan's sermon uh, yesterday, and um, I think some themes from that are going to show up in, in, in uh, a January sermon I preach. But, but he was talking about, right, at Revelation 4, you have these living beings saying over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, for who was, who is, and is coming. And I think that, and I read that, I'm like, man, if you just sing that over and over again, maybe not like totally repeat, maybe you sing it for an hour and then go away and then come back, I don't know what it's like. But think about that, singing those exact same words a thousand years from now. It's going to seem boring. But you know what? If, you're at, if you actually believe the words that you're singing about that God of whom you are singing, it's not boring. It's, it's like a relationship where, you know, the love that just continues to multiply through that because the object of your affection is there in his presence. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, but not just any old place, a place with the Father. Second is this, Jesus is the truth. 
He not only makes a way for us, he is the way. Just like Jesus doesn't just teach us a truth, he is the truth. And what that means is that fellowship with Jesus is a prerequisite to fellowship with the Father. And in the words of a commentator, Jesus doesn't show us the way to the Father. Rather, Jesus is the way to the Father. Now, I know for many in our society, this is a difficult tenet to digest in our modern age. We live in a time where that mantra is coexist. You've all seen the bumper stickers, right? Coexist. The letters are spelled out with different religious symbols. And I've got no problem with that in an ideal sense because we ought to be respectful. We ought to be loving with others whether or not they share, regardless of whether they share our religious worldview or not. Just because someone holds to a different faith from us ought never be used as an excuse to respond in violence or harm. Every human being is made in the image of God, and therefore every human being is given inherent dignity by their creator. But, at least in my experience, the way that that slogan is typically understood is one of universalism. It's not just like coexist, tolerate each other, but it's more of a cry, a statement of all paths, right? We can get along because it doesn't matter. All of those paths lead to God. Some are welcome to believe that, but I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible that you're going to find supporting evidence of it. What you are going to find is a lot of passages like what we read this morning, where we see Jesus providing some type of exclusive claim of access to God. If you want to get to the Father, you've got to get through Jesus. That's what he said. There are clear boundary lines that Jesus has established, and we have to respect his teaching that no one gets to the Father except through him. It is exclusive, but I I want to throw out one caveat to it. The gospel is, at the same time, while being exclusive, is abundantly inclusive as to who can be gifted that access. Grace means that nothing that we receive from God is by merit, but purely out of His goodwill and love for us. Salvation is only through Christ. It's not because of anything I did. It's not because of how I lived my life, but because of how Jesus lived His life. Jesus spent so much of His earthly ministry tearing down the man-made walls that sought to keep people out of his kingdom. Didn't matter of your ethnicity. Didn't matter what your profession was. It didn't matter if you were male or female, because you know what? 2,000 years ago, some of those things did matter in the different uh, views of the kingdom. Literally anyone who calls on the name of Jesus was able to experience that grace and be welcomed into the kingdom. And I think even now, 2,000 years after Jesus makes those statements, we need to be mindful of this because salvation and access to the Father is through Jesus, but it's through grace alone. It's not through who you vote for. It's not based upon how many cuss words you said last week. It's not centered on what denomination you belong to. It's through Jesus. It's through Christ So yes, Christianity is exclusive, but I I dare you to find a more inclusive God who desires all people to be saved if they would just turn to him. It's not exclusion based upon, you know, 
God forcing people out. A lot of times what we see, and we at small group a couple weeks ago were, were talking about the unforgivable sin that you find in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus is teaching about. So often people are like, oh man, I hope I didn't do it. Right? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what Jesus said it is. But that's vague enough that we're kind of like, what does that mean? Have I committed it? Have I like eliminated my possibility of going to heaven? And you know, the, Mike said it, and I've, I've heard this kind of conventional wisdom before. If like you're concerned about, you know, committing the unforgivable sin, you probably haven't done it. Like that's a good litmus test for you. But what we talked about, ultimately what the unforgivable sin is, is it's a repeated, continuous hardness of heart against the things of God. That's what excludes us from the kingdom. A a failure and an unwillingness to turn to Jesus, to turn to the Holy Spirit, to gain life. Here's my last take home. Jesus says some really important language about his unity with the Father as part of his identity. And the early church did struggle with what do you make of this? What do you do with this language? Jesus is claiming to be God. He is doing and saying things only God is supposed to be able to do and say. But the people, the the Hebraic tradition that Christ came out of was deeply rooted in staunch monotheism. So how did that work? And this led to a number of controversies in the church. And one of the big ones that you see in those first couple of generations after the disciples is the teaching of Arianism. And their teaching taught that Jesus was not actually God, but was a lesser demigod created by the Father. And this is actually the the purpose for them calling the Council of Nicaea, which was 325 AD. The Nicene Creed comes out of this council, labels Arianism as a heresy. Even though they didn't have a full understanding of how this works metaphysically, they had to acknowledge the truth of Jesus' teaching, that Jesus wasn't just like, write about God, but that God was fully present in Jesus. Now, this, and I mean, even the word Trinity, you won't find the word Trinity anywhere in your Bibles. It's an invention. The word is not not the, the concept. The word is an invention of the church. Because it was an acknowledgement that you had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All in some way God, as one God, but yet there was distinction. Right? It wasn't, uh, gosh, I think it's called monager. I can't remember what it's called. It doesn't matter what the heresy is called. The point is, like, some people, one of the other heresies was that, you know, think about the Old West. Right? If you think about the Old West, you had, like, the sheriff, who was also the lawyer, who was also, like, the barber right? You know, one person wore these, like, different hats in town, and that was what God was like, right? Like, the Father and Jesus were the same, and it was just the same kind of being wearing a different hat. And they said, no, 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 because there are times where there's clear distinctions in Scripture between Jesus and the Father. There's clear times where, you know, Jesus, it's good for Jesus to go away so that the Holy Spirit comes. If they were the same, then it would just be like, it's good for me to go away, and then I'll come back again, which he does say, but anyway. I'm, I'm confusing things now, right? And the, the point I'm trying to say is that, that this idea of the Trinity comes out of this, an acknowledgement that God is one, one being with three persons that come out of that. The Nicene Greek, uh, or let me, let me say this, this might seem like ancient history, right? All right, 1,700 years ago, they, they decided this stuff, but we still have this heresy in our midst, right? This is one of the foundational perspectives of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny the deity of Christ, 
They instead label him as a lesser being, a created being. And, this, and you know, you think, well, why is this such a big deal? And I, I know I shared this a uh, month or so ago in church, but there are some, some recent studies that have highlighted that I think it was like 30-some percent, maybe it was even 40 percent, of faithful evangelical Christians, and evangelical, it's not politically evangelical, but evangelical in the sense that they believe the authority of Scripture, right? Uh, I don't remember what all the tenets were, but they, like, your, your bread and butter, historically rooted, faithful Christians, like 30 to 40 percent of them deny, I think, that Jesus was a, a lesser created being of God. That's like huge doctrine that they dealt with generations ago. I mean, the Nicene Creed affirms this. It says that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same nature as the Father. So it's important for us, even in our day and age, to cling to these truths that we find in Scripture and we we see affirmed through church history. My hope this morning is that we, like the disciples, are encouraged by Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, that he's gone away to prepare and pave a place for us, paving it through the cross, that he is that bridge that gives us access to the Father, and as such, we're part of his kingdom, and that that inclusion should never drive us to arrogance. We're not included because of anything that we did, but Jesus has welcomed those who have come to him. So here, I'll post these on Facebook and the website this week. Just some things for us to think about, to dwell on this. This is the question that I had asked earlier. If you could have heaven with all the benefits it provides, but Jesus was not there, would you want to stay? Like, really think about that and answer honestly. And if you say yes, like, again, that's okay for you to say that. (laughs) We're we're in, in grace in Christ. But what does that reveal about our heart and our connection, our intimacy with God? If we're like, you know what? I'll just take the gift. I don't need that, the giver. Here's the second. How do you respond to the exclusive claim of Jesus in the statement? Is it a source of comfort? Is it a source we kind of grate against? And and why do you think you feel that way? Process through that. Last is this. How well do you understand the Trinity? It's complicated. There's a really fun video uh, of some Irish peasants talking to St. Patrick about it, which is a lot of fun because he's trying to make these uh, different images, you know, like an egg, right? You've got the shell, the yolk, and the white. All of our images are heretical in some way. Anyway, but we try. How well do you understand the Trinity? Do you feel capable of explaining the nature of the Godhead to others? Why or why not? Because I think if the answer is no, that you don't, again, it's okay. We're, we're a work in progress, but how can we bolster some of our knowledge so that we aren't falling into some of these ancient heresies? Why don't you join me in prayer, and then we'll, we'll sing one more song to close. Lord, thank you that you have gone before us, that you have prepared a place for us, that we are not alone in this world. Lord, the, the, the piece that just kind of kept harping at me this week is that it's not just about eternity. It's not just about paradise that you call us, but communion with the Father, communion with you. Lord, help us to, to grow in our affection so that that is viewed as a, a blessing 
a benefit and not an obligation. Lord, that we, like the saints that we shared with this morning, like the, the heavenly beings, can continue to worship and praise you because you're worthy of it, worthy of it all for us. God, thank you that you carved a way through the cross that instead of having to, to undergo that suffering, we're able to come directly through you to enter into that communion, enter into that intimacy with the Godhead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.